Our Father and our God, thank you for the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. We're reminded of those encouraging words out of 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ has conquered death and there is no longer any sting to it. The power of the law has been taken away in its condemning power. And in Christ, we have life that never lives. Thanks be unto God for the unspeakable gift of a Savior who takes our sin and in turn gives us life. Lord, in that triumph, we come to worship you as our King, and we long to serve you faithfully as our Lord. Speak to every heart here, open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things from your law. We pray in Jesus' wonderful name, amen, amen. A man sent a letter to the IRS because he had cheated on his taxes and he felt guilty. He wasn't able to sleep. So he sent a $50, $50 check with this note. If I'm still unable to sleep, I'll send the balance. <laughs> and that's how we deal with our guilt. We don't want to feel guilty, but we do. And so we try to ignore it. Sometimes we um, deny it or assuage it with some horrible attempt to satisfy an uneasy conscience, but the guilt is still there. And you know why? It's because we're guilty. Guilty is, guilt is not something that we have invented. Guilt comes to us when we break the Creator's law. And we realize we are on the outs with Him and the wonderful peace we should enjoy when we walk in fellowship with Him has been destroyed. And so when we return to our study in the book of Romans, we're reminded of the ground we've covered where Paul has established the guilt of all humanity. He started out by talking about the Gentile world and their guilt. And then he went to the Jewish world and their guilt. And now when we come to Romans chapter 3, he's putting everything together. The whole world is guilty before God. He argues from creation that God has made us and yet we would not recognize him as God. We were not thankful in our hearts. We became darkened in our minds and we began to worship God the creature instead of the creator. It's in our history. It's, it's in our genes. It's who we are. And the scripture says we are guilty. Francis Schaeffer said if he was going to share the gospel with someone and had only an hour, he'd spend the first 50 minutes talking about judgment. And Paul kind of agrees in this wonderful treatise on the gospel of God's grace, he spends the bulk of the first three chapters talking about how guilty we are. So we come to Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. Let's call this the indictment. It's almost like there's a courtroom scene here. And you can imagine the Apostle Paul like a prosecutor bringing up the evidence against us. But first there is 
an accusation, an indictment, and we find it in verse 9 of chapter 3. What shall we say then? Do we have any advantage? And this all goes back to the very first verse, which starts out with the same rhetorical question. What then shall we say? Or how shall we conclude? Is there any advantage in being a Jew? In verse 1, the Apostle Paul said, actually in verse 2, much in every way. There's a great advantage in being a Jew. When you get to verse 9, he says, do we have any advantage? And the answer is, not at all. Or perhaps more perceptively, not entirely. This seems like an apparent contradiction. You ask the same question, you get two different answers. That's because a simplistic answer uh, cannot fully comprehend this situation. The fact of the matter is, there is an advantage if you were Jewish, because to you, you were given the Torah. The Jews were given the ordinances, the laws. God came down and took the Jews to be his own people. They had all of these advantages which made them responsible because God chose them to be a light to all the other nations. But if you think your advantage in being a Jew secures salvation for you, no matter how you live, then there is no advantage whatsoever. So it depends on how you look at the situation. Very interesting, when Paul talks about the Jewish advantage, he talks in the third person, even though he is a Jew. But when he talks about Jewish sinfulness, he talks in the first person and puts himself right in there with them. Uh, Just as he says in verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Do we Jews have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge. There's the indictment that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Think about that charge for a minute. Uh, Look at the word all. Paul has been bending over backwards to make this plain. In chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is coming to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. And he talks about the blessings that flow in chapter 2 in the same order. It's the order of priority in the sense of God's giftedness. But he makes it abundantly clear when he gets to chapter 3 and verse 9 that Jew and Gentile alike are all under the cloud of sin, are all under the same indictment. And when you get to chapter 3, verse 22, there is no difference. Before God, from the perspective of salvation, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile whatsoever. Everyone is under sin. Now, the idea of sin here needs to be defined because sometimes we think of sin just as individual acts. And it is that, but it's more than that. Here, it's mentioned actually in the sense of the sin nature. It's singular. All are under sin. Sin is man's brokenness, fallenness. It is the heart of human corruption, the result of rebellion against God. It is our lostness. Sin is all of that. 
It involves our acts. We don't become a sinner because we sin. We sin because we're already a sinner. That's our nature. Romans chapter 14. Everything that someone does that does not issue forth from faith is sin. And so all of these acts, which sometimes seem good, even the plowing of the wicked is sin. You say, how can plowing a field be wrong? Because it's done for the wrong motives. It's done for the wrong God. It's done in rebellion against God. John Stott said that sin is the revolt of the self against God. The dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of yourself, of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-deification. The reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. Sin is self. And we want to be in control. So that's the nature of our heart. And it issues forth in all kinds of rebellion. But there's something in this charge that is really important for us to see. Everyone is a sinner because of their sin nature. But it says that we are under the power of sin. And for the first time, there is a picture given of sin, a personification that sin is a cruel tyrant that has captured us and imprisoned us and condemned us to die. That we are under its power and there's nothing that we can do to set ourselves free. Chapter 1 says that people are suppressing the truth and we do that because we're under sin. It says that we approve of evildoers, chapter 1, and we do that because we're under sin. Chapter 2 talks about people who think they're moral, condemning others, when they're actually doing the same activities. We do that because we're under the power, the control of sin. In one of the songs we sang a moment ago, it talked about canceled sin, but the original version of that was reigning sin. He breaks the power of reigning sin. We're under sin's dominion, and the devil has us exactly where he wants us. James Edwards is an astute theologian who talks about this concept of sin. In Paul's thinking, he says, sin carries two paradoxical and unresolved tensions. People sin willingly, but they also sin inevitably. Sin is freely chosen, otherwise it would not be sin. But there is a gravitational pull from our nature to sin, a tyranny, a dominion against which humanity is powerless to contend. In other words, humanity is not free to not sin. Now, you won't find many people in this world who will agree with that one. But that is Bible. And people talk about being free. 
And people talk about making their own decisions and having no one rule over them. But the fact of the matter is they are ruled by a cruel tyrant called sin and they are under sin. Sin is over them and it weighs upon them and it controls them constantly. It's interesting that the rabbis would talk about being under sin because sin leads to death and everyone dies, so everyone is a sinner. But they believed that you could, sin was more specific acts, and so you could say no to sin and be virtuous in your obedience to the law, and by so doing, Merit salvation or show that you should be saved. Rabbi, the Rabbi Paul, believed the same thing. He used to talk about his nature in Philippians, and he said, I am blameless from the law. As far as the law goes, (laughs) I've done nothing wrong. I'm righteous, blameless. But the converted Paul said, there's something in me and something over me that I cannot control, and I found out it is me sinful me and there's no get this there's no way out that's what paul has been saying to the gentile to the jew to the whole world we're all under sin so that's the indictment now will it stand In a court of law, you've got to have evidence. So now the Apostle Paul is going to bring evidence. Actually, it's a string of Old Testament quotations to prove his point. Now, it was a common rabbinical practice to skillfully string together text on a particular topic to prove a point. Alfred Edersheim, in his uh, wonderful book on uh, Jewish life and history, called it a string of pearls, as the rabbis would bring the text together and would prove their point. And so the Apostle Paul is basically doing the same thing, all taken from the Old Testament, book of Psalms primarily, the book of Ecclesiastes, Isaiah. They're all taken from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, not taken from the Hebrew. And they're all in the the perfect tense, which simply means it's a finished act which has ongoing effects or results. It never stops working. So these start in verse 10. Here's the first one. As it is written, and he begins to quote the scripture, and this is taken from Psalm 14. There is no one righteous not even one, verse 11. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Now let's pause for a moment and just observe the repetition of the phrase, no one, no one. It's gonna be repeated again a few times. No one. And then, as if that weren't enough, he adds, not even one. We're talking about issues of the heart here so we're t- because we're talking about someone being righteous, and righteousness goes deeper than just outward acts, but he talks about no one understanding, that's the mind, and no one seeking after God, that's 
the will. And there was no one who fits in the category of a righteous heart with an understanding mind who is faithfully going after God. No one. You say, well, I know some people who are seeking after God. We love him because he... We seek him because he first sought us. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what did they do? Let's find God. (laughs) No, they said, let's hide from God. And what did God do? He sought for Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. He knew exactly where they were. Adam, where are you? He said. It's not because God couldn't find him in the foliage. It's because, and it's not because God didn't know where he was. It's because Adam didn't know where he was. Separated from God, spiritually dead. Jesus came into this world to seek and to save that which is lost. He is the one who does the seeking. God is the standard of righteousness. Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as he is perfect. So that kind of deals with the heart, the mind, the will. Look at verse 12. All have turned away which reminds us of Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. All have turned away. They have together become worthless, a Hebrew word that is often used for sour milk. (laughs) Nothing more repugnant than sour milk. Good for nothing. There is no one who does good, not even one. Here the scripture is emphasizing the fact, and this is taken, by the way, also from Psalm 14, that the tenor of a person's life is aimed away from God, gone astray, and their deeds, instead of being righteous, righteous, are worthless, and there is no good in us. Now, we can debate about the whole idea of general grace that has, in in God creating people in his image, there is some goodness still in human beings in the sense of relative goodness as society measures goodness, but there is no spiritual righteousness and holiness because our hearts are sinful. And no one is seeking after God, and there is no good. Only God is good. So these are all offenses against the Lord. Look at verse 13, and I think we have 13 and 14 for you on the screen. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Pastor Doug read from the New Living Translation, the uh, venom of snakes is on their lips. And their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Sins of speech in these two verses now flow from the heart and the mind and the will. The throats go down to a heart like a grave that is full of corruption. And the tongues practice deceit. The idea of a fish hook was often um, used by this particular word. Nothing wrong with fishing, but you know, when you think about it, you're just out there to deceive those poor little fish. (laughs) 
I'm not really on the fish's side because I love fish. But the whole part of the lure is to take them out of their environment. And that's exactly what the devil does. But now we're talking about people who act like the devil, whose mouths are lures. And they speak deceit to draw you away. There's poison in their words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is so wrong. Because words are poisonous and get into your system and kill. That's taken from Psalm 140, by the way, and Psalm uh, 5. Verse 14, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, and a bitter life ruins all the society around it. This is speech that comes from the mouth, but the mouth speaks from the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 7, or Mark 7, whatever comes out of man comes from the heart. That's what makes him unclean. Look at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways wherever they go. They leave a trail of destruction and devastation. And verse 17, the way of peace they do not know. Notice feet and ways, verse 16, and the way of peace. This is taken from Isaiah 59. Man deviates from the right path. Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 8, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. So when we are away from God and we're not seeking him, our feet take us to places where we injure and destroy and leave ruin and misery in our wake. So you've got the heart and you've got the speech And you've got the path of their life. By the way, this quotation from Isaiah 59 is reciting the sins of Israel centuries old, now being applied to the Jews of that day. I'm sure they didn't like it. As Jesus said to them, or Paul said to them, you are just like your father's. But there's two things that they don't have. They don't have peace. They have no idea where to get it. The way of peace, they do not know. And verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. The Greek word for fear is phobos. Today we talk about people being something phobic, right? You hear that all the time. Well, you're just phobic. That's your problem. You know, with the problem with the world is that they're not phobic. They're not theophobic. God-phobic. I'm waiting for that conversation that I get into to throw that one in there. (laughs) You're not theophobic. But then I thought about it. That's not right because we are to be theophobic. Instead of telling someone you're afraid of God and that's why you're running away from him and that's true in one sense this verse of scripture says be theophobic because the thing that marks the unbeliever is this statement there is no respect for God at all no fear of God before their eyes 
This is taken from Psalm 36. John Calvin said every wickedness flows from a disregard of God. And if you do not fear God, that eliminates the possibility of knowing God. For the beginning of the knowledge of God is the fear of the Lord. If you would say something about our society that would be all-inclusive, you may not do any better than this one statement. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of law. There's no fear of retribution or punishment. There's no fear of God. What I find very interesting is that all of these passages that Paul strings together in rabbinic fashion in a charis, are the very passages that the Jews used against the Gentiles. (laughs) And now Paul is using them against the Jews. It's the mind that doesn't understand and the will doesn't seek and the mouth speaks horrible things and the feet go forward to kill and destroy and ruin and bring misery. All the body parts mentioned here are being abused. But when you get to Romans chapter 12, the Christian is to present the body as what? Romans 12, 1, living sacrifice. See the difference? Unbeliever, all about me, and uses what God created to destroy and kill. Believer, my body, and all of its component parts, all of its faculties, I give to God in an oxymoron, a living sacrifice. Sacrifices die. Well, you are to die. And then live for Christ. That's what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2. John Stott said, this is the biblical doctrine of total depravity, which I suspect is repudiated only by those who misunderstand it. <laughs> yeah, everyone really believes in total depravity if it's properly understood. Total depravity doesn't mean that you are as bad as you could be. No one carries all of these characteristics, but this is characteristic of our sinful society. Total depravity means every faculty of your being, your heart, your mind, your emotions, your will, all affected by self. And sin. And God is not in their thoughts. And God is not to be feared. And the life is not presented as a living sacrifice. Oh, Paul just paints the picture like a talented prosecuting attorney. There's no way out of this. The apostolic hammer seems to secure the nails into each one of our coffins. The evidence is overwhelming, so we come finally to the verdict. All the world is guilty before God. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, and here the law law means all of the Old Testament, as he was just quoting from, it says to those who are under the law, So not only are we under sin's control, but we're under the law's authority. So that every mouth may be silenced. 
and the whole world be held accountable to God or become guilty before God. The evidence is so overwhelming that there should be no whisper of a defense. What are you going to say for yourself when God says, this is who you are? Remember in the book of Job, the Lord said to Job, this is at the end, when Job defended himself quite often, and he'd really done nothing in particular to bring about the disasters he faced. The Lord said to him, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Will you correct me? Let him who accuses God answer. And Job says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, (laughs) but I have no answer now. Twice, but I will say no more. And that's the response at the end of Romans. The voice of the law has silenced the mouth of man, and that is its purpose. For we read in verse 20, therefore no one will be, will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, that is, by keeping the law. Sometimes we say, if a person could keep the law, they would be declared righteous. No. Sin goes deeper than that. It's part of your nature. And the fact of the matter is, you cannot keep the law. By the works of the law, no one, there it is again, No one, not even one, could be declared righteous in God's sight. Of course, the exception, the man Christ Jesus. But rather, it is through the law that we have a knowledge of our sin. It is because of the law that we become aware or conscious that we're sinners. You see, the law came not to make you better but worse. The law came to show you, to show me how bad we really are, how lost and desperate our condition really is. The law was sent to humble us and to terrify us and to break us and to drive us to a savior named Jesus. That's the function of the law. By the way, this is unique insight given to the Apostle Paul that was not in rabbinic Judaism, that the purpose of the law was to show you how bad you are, that the purpose of the law was to stop your mouth from saying how righteous you think you are. And so from chapter 1, the immoral Gentiles who were without excuse, chapter 2, the Critical moralists, whether they were Jew or Gentile, equally have no excuse. The special status of Jews does not exonerate them before the judgment bar of God. They have no excuse. The whole world is guilty. All of its inhabitants, without any exception, they're guilty before God. And there is no hope of a defense. I find it interesting that this horrible message of condemnation and depravity was first couched in the terms of the gospel 
way back at the beginning of chapter one. Remember that? He talked about the gospel of grace. I've heard some people say, you know, when you witness, you, you know, you just you need to talk about sin. That's the very first thing. But I think the very first thing is you talk about God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's the way he created you. But then sin entered in. <clears throat> See God in his glory and his goodness and his love. In the light of his love, see our wickedness and sin. Someone said, you don't know how close you were to freezing until you began to thaw by the fire. I don't think people grasp how wicked their sin is until God begins to turn the light of his grace on their soul and warm their hard hearts and they began to see how lost they really are. I'm not a little lost. I'm totally lost. There is no hope in me. And if I judge myself by others, that's the wrong standard. If I judge myself by God, I'm in big trouble. It's a devastating conclusion. So let's blame everything on our parents. It's their fault. Our genes or our education, our nurturing, our environment. We're victims here. <laughs> no, you're sinners here before a holy God. And if you have any defense left, you're hopeless. Your mouth should be stopped because of the things that we just read. Dio Moody once went to a prison in New York, and as he went from cell to cell, no, no one was interested in hearing about Christ. Every person in the prison said that they were framed. None of them, none of them were guilty. Moody finally said, Christ can't save anyone in this place. And he was about ready to leave until someone took him to <clears throat> one last cell. It was the worst prisoner incarcerated in the entire jail. The man had been hearing Moody's words from other cells, and when Moody got to this cell, the man was weeping. He said, my sins are more than I can bear. And D.L. Moody said, boy, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I thought you were my friend. What do you mean you're glad to hear that? He said, well, if your sins are more than you can bear, then you will seek a Savior. And I've got good news for you. Jesus can bear your sin away. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God, is he full atonement can it be hallelujah what a savior let's pray lord our mouths have been stopped there's nothing we can say except woe to me the sinner but we can cry out in faith when grace touches our heart and we see the scene of a loving God who sent his son to pay the penalty for all our wickedness and redeem us 
from condemnation and save us and give us life that will never end. Oh, Lord, stop some mouths today except in prayer to you in repentance and faith that they might find eternal redemption in your amazing love. In Jesus' name we pray.